Welcome to everyone joining the webinar. We'll get started at the top of the hour. Um, so th thank you for joining us today. Um, if you're listening to the recording, um, it'll just be about two minutes before we get started. Well, I'll go ahead and get us started. Thank you to everyone joining the webinar today. My name is Rachel Dager. I'm Executive Director of SNEB. I'm glad you're joining us for this um, presentation uh, sponsored by the Healthy Aging Division. Uh, so a housekeeping to get us started. I am going to drop the slide handout for today's session into the chat block. So you should be able to download um, that handout to follow along with the presentation. Uh, we will take questions primarily at the end of the presentation, um, but Dr. Harden Fanning did say if there's a point of clarification that you need to have made while the presentation is ongoing, um, go ahead and type that into uh, the Q&A block or the chat block and um, she can address that question. Um, otherwise, if other questions, we'll just uh, have plenty of time during the webinar to, to um, handle those at the end of the session. Um, so there is a short survey when I close the webinar today. So we appreciate your feedback on this session. As always, ideas for future webinars are appreciated. And then watch for an email follow-up. Um, that will probably come out by, I'd say by the in Friday of this week. Um, the email follow-up will include a link to the recording that we're making, um, the handout, and as well as the CEU certificate uh, that you're earning for your live attendance. So I will turn things over to our moderator. Um, Dr. Toba Wolf is a consultant dietitian um, with TD Wolf Nutrition. Uh, so Tova, thank you for joining us and thank you for organizing this webinar for SNEB and the Healthy Aging Division. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Rachel. All right, everyone. Hello, and thank you for attending today's webinar hosted by the Healthy Aging Division. I would like to introduce and welcome today's webinar speaker. Dr. Frances Harding Fanning is a tenured professor and the Shirley B. Powers Endowed Chair of Nursing Research at the University of Louisville School of Nursing. She has published in numerous research, she has published numerous research articles presented at regional, national, and international conferences, 
She has received funding from the NIH, the Health Resources and Services Administration, the Aetna Foundation for her work in food security. Dr. Hardin Fanning currently teaches in the PhD program, supervising PhD nursing projects and supporting development of research and scholarship in the School of Nursing and in the Norton Healthcare System. Today, Dr. Hardin Fanning will be presenting on development and the validation of the Food Resource Acceptability Questionnaire, and that's abbreviated FRAQ. This webinar describes how stigma impacts acceptance of food assistance, the development and psychometric testing of the FRAQ, potential strategies aimed at decreasing food assistance stigma, and socio-ecological contributors to food insecurity among older adults living in rural areas. So with that said, we'd like to thank Dr. Hardin Fanning um, for speaking today and we'll let her get started. So I'll hand the mic to you. All right, well, thank you so much, Tova, and thank you, Rachel, for the lovely introduction. And I do wanna thank all the uh, webinar participants for just giving me the opportunity to present some of the work that we've been doing over the past 24 months with the Aetna Foundation Healthiest Counties and Cities Challenge funding that we received. Again, I am from the University of Louisville. Rachel, my slides are not, oh, here we go. Okay, sorry about that. So for this webinar, uh, we will address three of the nutrition educator competencies and those include the determinants of, uh, of health and being able to achieve optimal health and quality of life, the basic approaches to studying some of the facilitators and barriers uh, related to diet and health relationships, and then using a participatory approach that includes social and environmental um, influences on healthy food access. The performance indicators are all related to research methods. And the learning needs codes include the evaluation and application of research as well as instruments and techniques. I have no conflict of interest to disclose. So that's all of our housekeeping slides. So I wanna tell you a little about me so that you really get a, a strong understanding of why I do what I'm doing at the University of Louisville. And prior to that, at the University of Kentucky where I retired about three years ago and moved to the University of Louisville. This is the home that I grew up in. It's a home in rural Appalachia with a grocery store and a post office in the basement. We, my family uh, opened this, my father built this home and we opened the post office and the little country store in 1965. So growing up, I, at the age of six, I understood what SNAP, food stamps, WIC, all of that, what they meant to people, how they sustained families. So I had a general understanding of why it was so important that we met the nutritional needs of people in the community and how that actually affected the community as a whole. So a little bit about the history of the, the little store that I grew up in and how that transitioned, which also has affected food security and access to healthy foods in some of those rural counties in Appalachia. When we first opened the store all the way through the 1980s, I like to call it a mini Walmart. My mother um, kept the store open from eight 
until eight o'clock at night. And she was able to provide dry goods, sundries, hardware, clothing, and seasonal items. We were just like the stores now, um, the larger stores like Walmart. At Christmas time, we had certain items that we only had in December. In fact, my brothers and I were in college before we realized that you could buy citrus fruit in the other 11 months of the year because we had it, we had it only in December. Uh, things like Valentine candy in February. So it served the community and met quite a bit of the needs. We also would have um, you know, farming, gardening instruments that would come in in the early spring. The one thing we didn't have was seafood and we were a family who loved seafood. So we would drive to an adjacent county about a 20, 25 minute drive once a week to get seafood. Then in the 1990s to the 2000s, it, it evolved to where it became more convenience store items because there were other small stores like Walmart, there were uh, Dollar General stores that were opening. So the more rural stores literally became convenience stores and anything that was for family consumption tended to be purchased from larger areas. At that time, I lived outside of the, of the county where I was where I grew up. So my mother would call me about every two weeks and say, we can't find apples. When you come in, can you bring some apples to your dad? And I would dr drive from my county, which is adjacent to Fayette County, where Lexington is. I would drive to Lexington, get apples, and then would deliver them on the weekends. Now it, it has evolved to where they have extremely limited access to minimally processed food. So at from the two, early 2010s until now, I tend to make weekly grocery store runs for them, both with produce and specialty items. My father's now diabetic, so they don't have access to sugar-free cookies, which he likes. So every Sunday, I make a trip home just to be able to, to provide them with groceries. So I was able not just to understand food insecurity, but also the change, the evolution of how access to food decreased. I lived that. So eventually I went to school. I uh, have a degree in medical assisting that I, I graduated from a Kentucky college in 1981 and then decided in 1995 to return to school because I experienced quite a bit of food insecurity, uh, being a medical assistant, being in school. So I decided to go back to school and become a nurse. And I obtained a two-year degree got out, started working, and decided to come back to school in 2003 to get a master's and then start working on a PhD. As a PhD student, I fell in love with the inflammatory process and how nutrition and sleep both affected that. So I thought if you can manipulate both of, the, both of those, we can really decrease mortality and morbidity. So I um, decided that that's, I either wanted to work on sleep or I wanted to work on nutrition. And my chair says, you have to pick one, you have to decide. So as I was driving home one weekend, taking groceries to my mother and father, I thought someone really needs to do something about access to healthy foods in these counties. And it finally dawned on me that I could be that person. So that started my journey, trying to do something about access to healthy foods. I did receive a three-year grant from the NINR right after um, I became um, a, a assistant professor. And my work began looking at ways to help people eat healthy in some of the rural Appalachian counties. And that evolved to the point where I now uh, spent the last two years with the Aetna Foundation, working specifically on food security issues. 
So I do want, as I move forward, I want to thank a few uh, people and organizations. As I said, the Aetna Foundation did fund this work. Uh, our partnership with the Food and Faith Coalition in Perry County, Kentucky, was, which is a group of over 40 community organizations, as well as uh, state and local government uh, officials, we formed a coalition and were able to work with the Aetna Foundation to achieve some pretty significant advances in food security in this county. Our Food and Faith Coalition liaison, our project director, very, very grateful. And then the Hazard Community College, which is the school in Perry County, we partnered with them to do quite a bit of work as well. And of course, my uh, colleagues at the School of Nursing who helped me navigate some of the things that I'm not really well versed in, my dean and then our uh, grants manager as well as our graduate assistant. None of this could have happened without all of their assistance. I'm very grateful. So the beginning of the Aetna Foundation, one of the things we had four umbrella objectives and one of those was to conduct a root cause analysis of food insecurity in the county to really go into in-depth qualitative interviews with different individuals within the community to find out those root causes of why people were struggling with food insecurity. We began with college students and then moved on to some other community members as well as food security advocates and our healthcare providers. We wanted to find out beyond the obvious, which was cost, uh, the lack of variety, that type of thing, if there were other things that were influencing their ability to feed themselves and their family. And one of the things that came to light was that there were many people in the community as well as at the college who refused to access some of the resources that they were aware of. So we started specifically kind of delving into that a little bit more. Why is this happening? Why aren't people taking advantage of the church food banks, the organizational food banks, we have what's called North Fork Local Foods, which works very diligently to ensure that farmer's market cost is low so that people can access fresh produce at a, at a relatively inexpensive cost, um, but they still weren't accessing some of these services. So we, with our interviews, what we found out was some of the attitudes toward accepting of community food assistance, that there was a stigma that they perceived that others would quote unquote, look down upon them. They also had an intrinsic pride that they felt it was their responsibility, both as adults and as parents or heads of households to be able to provide for their own. And then the third was there were concerns about taking from those with greater need. They felt a guilt that if they accessed some of the resources that were in the community, that was literally taking things out of the mouths of others. So I, of course, went to the literature to find out, is this something that's new and what is out there related to this? Excuse me. And this is, it happens everywhere. People uh, experiencing food insecurity often don't access resources because of stigma and embarrassment. They feel humiliated. They also, there's a social expectation in our society that parents should be able to provide for their children. They felt lower in the hierarchy that people were quote unquote looking down on them. There's also a lack of anonymity in smaller communities and that everybody knows your business and people are gonna talk about me if they see me at you know the Baptist church or the uh, Presbyterian church taking canned goods. And of course, taking from others, uh, they felt feelings of dependence. And this had a negative impact on their reputation, their own identity, their self-worth. 
and their dignity. As another project, simultaneously, I, we had a lot of our nurses and nurse practitioners in our state who suddenly became unemployed because uh, our state government literally shut down all elective surgeries during the pandemic. So a lot of them were sent home. And unfortunately, our unemployment infrastructure in our capital did not have the capacity to process they weren't ready for the droves of people who were needing unemployment. So there was about a six to 10 month delay in people receiving unemployment benefits. So we had situations where we had two, two person households. They both were unemployed. There were no income coming in. And these had been individuals who had, who were probably upper middle class income and suddenly everything was knocked out from under them. So I interviewed quite a few of these individuals and it really, it, it brought a realization to them of what many of our community members deal with every single day of their life is how, what do I do about my next meal? How am I going to feed my children? How do I feel about myself knowing that I'm having to struggle? So it was very eye-opening in that way. It was very sad. I mean, I sat through quite a few conversations with people sobbing and, but the realization that other people deal with this on a daily basis was very evident because these were healthcare providers that I was interviewing. So overall with stigma, poverty is tends to be the central driver of food insecurity stigma because that tends to be the major problem. And stigma itself can manifest both at the individual where I perceive I'm being discriminated against, I experience prejudice, I live stereotypes, and then also structural things that are happening within the food environment itself, within retail marketing. And I'll talk a little bit more about this toward the end of the presentation of how, because these are experienced at different levels of manifest, uh, at different levels, that means we can develop interventions at different levels. We can target more than one at the same time. Another problem in Appalachia right now is the opioid epidemic and what we're finding, which further compounds food insecurity and the stigma attached with accepting food assistance, is that a lot of grandparents are actually rearing their grandchildren. Unfortunately, the parents of the children are keeping their SNAP and WIC benefits. They do not share these with the grandparents who are trying to feed the grandchildren. And in central Appalachia, which is where uh, Kentucky is located, 90% of our counties, they have absolutely no services for grandparents who are, uh, who are rearing their grandchildren. So they're hit with not only the stigma of not being able to provide for their family, they also have the stigma of people being aware that their children are not taking care of their children and that their children are in, involved in drug abuse. So it's coming at them from three different directions. Um, so it kind of, it's exponentially uh, stigmatizing and stereotyping many of the grandparents here in Appalachia. So how does stigma develop? Why do we care? Okay, because enacted, anticipated, and internalized stigma transition into what's known as a stereotype threat. The enacted stigma are my experience with prejudice, stereotyping, and discrimination from other people. And I've experienced this because I have an accent. I've been to many conferences in larger cities, and some people find that endearing. Some people automatically assume I have, you know, a very low IQ because I have an accent. And then anticipated stigma is the expectation because it happens enough that you actually start to expect 
to experience the discrimination in the future. And this is often the rationale for people being hesitant to accept food. They've been through something in the past or they know someone who struggled with having to go, whether it's file for SNAP benefits, whether it's going to a community food pantry, something in that experience has made them, it, it's embedded. So they anticipate it happening again. Then it transitions to what's known as internalized stigma, where they feel so strongly about the negative beliefs about their self and their group that they begin to really internalize this and they believe it. And that includes all the behavioral, mental and physical health outcomes as well. We have people who just assume that, you know, well, things are happening to poor people just because they are poor, they, they, they need to work type of thing. Um, and there are so many factors that go into why people are food insecure. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, but whenever you're trying to talk to people who can affect change, such as legislators, it can be difficult to convince them and say, you can't have healthy people until we have healthy food and healthy neighborhoods. So what happens as a result of that is what's known as stereotype threat. And that is literally just the perception of confirming the stereotype because you experience the discrimination, the stereotyping enough that you start to, be, to actually confirm the behavior. And despite the efforts to make sure that um, transactions are confidential, at some of these food banks and pantries and food assistance organizations, as well as people being very non-judgmental in their interactions, that anticipated stigma permeates our society. And a lot of times it will manifest as a behavior of just not accepting assistance when, uh, when necessary. And as I said earlier, the Appalachian grandparents is a very good example of that in that they feel that people are viewing them as failures as parents because your child is not taking care of your grandchildren, but yet they're struggling to, to be able to provide food for their, their grandchildren as well. So with structural stigma specific to food assistance, uh, some of the things that, and this is just a general, I'm sure most of you could probably you know, tell me several more that um, have the potential to um, produce discrimination as well as stigma, is the nutrition assistance eligibility documents that you have to be able to prove you're at a certain level uh, of income or that you have a certain number of people in your household. Just that process can be stigmatizing. Also the location of low cost grocery stores, and you wouldn't think that that would be something that would cause stigma, but when you look at some of the grocery stores in the poor rural counties, they tend to be older buildings that are not uh, in, they're not taken care of, you know, very, um, some of the foundations have even cracked and are falling. And then you go to more of the affluent neighborhoods and you have these beautiful fresh market with hanging baskets, you know, around the outside of them. So it's a stark contrast and people are very much aware that some of the low cost grocery stores, even though they fulfill an incredible need, just the fact that they're in those neighborhoods and they're paying, you know, maybe a, a less rent than other stores would, uh, that can also produce a stigma. And then you don't see generic food items in retail marketing. You know, we all want Kellogg's, we all want, uh, you know, Quaker Oat, we all want the the market brand because that's what we see on television. That's what we see in retail marketing. But the store brands, those types of things, 
they aren't really marketed as well. And of course that's to keep the cost down, but even that produces a stigma. And then the quality of produce in our rural grocery stores. I did an interview many, about six or seven years ago with people uh, talking about their, um, we were asking people about their perception of the food environment in some of these rural counties. And one of the ladies said, you know, our produce section, she said, I think they go to every grocery store in the country, they find the produce that's just barely at the last sale date. They throw it in the back of a pickup, they bang it around a few times and let it get nice and bruised, and then they dump it in our stores. So just the perception that they're receiving the leftovers uh, causes stigma in, in some individuals. And then grocery store closures in rural regions. Here in Kentucky, we have several counties who do not have one single grocery store. Uh, we did some cost analysis several years ago where we would go to grocery stores in the counties and do pricing um, of USDA market basket foods. And we showed up in one county that we had randomly selected and a week before the store had closed. So we had to quickly call our statistician and get a new county. So just you know, imagine some of the things that you're facing that people begin to feel that you know we're not even worth feeding. It, and that's the perception that a lot of people in these rural counties are feeling. So with stigma reduction, I won't spend a lot of time on this because I'm gonna talk about it later in the presentation, but the interventions that typically focus on stigma reduction will target one sociological level and they tend to be related to health conditions or behaviors. Um, there are multiple levels socioeconomic, ecologically that we can influence stigma related to food assistance, which are interpersonal within me, interpersonal, you know, my family members, the interactions of others, and then of course the service environment and even policy levels. And again, I'll talk about more of those toward the end. So as a researcher and a nurse, I, I started having all these thoughts about, this is how we can reduce the stigma, we can normalize this. You know, I would partner with uh, dietitians and I, I, we would have these conversations and these wonderful ideals would manifest. And I thought, well, then we need to find a way, let me go to the literature and find a way that we can measure the likelihood that people will perceive food assistance as socially acceptable. And there really wasn't one specific to food assistance stigma. So I thought, well, I, let's make one. So I conducted a lot of qualitative interviews and we developed questions that were related to food assistance programs and resources, and then conducted a modified Delphi technique. I had an expert nurse researchers review by several, and we piloted a 37 item pool of questions in 560 volunteers we did a factor analysis and we were able to reduce the scale significantly. So when we did the modified Delphi technique, we had 11 food security advocates who were members of our coalition. We wanted them to evaluate content validity. We brought them all together. We had a nice catered meal in an outdoor location because this was during COVID. And they were also members of school health and uh, other governmental food organizations present. We put them in groups of three to four in these different little rooms that we had at a pavilion that was outdoor and we instructed them to review and discuss each of those items. And we wanted them to, to look at the literacy level of the potential populations, the cultural implications of those items, and then the relevance of items to the stigma 
that was associated with food assistance acceptance. So following that items, we randomly ordered them so that everybody in each, so that each group reviewed the different questions, but they reviewed them all. So they weren't simultaneously doing one through seven and we, we mixed it up a little bit in case they could hear each other speaking. And then each group had a scribe that wrote comments related to any item that the group members thought should be eliminated and to tell why. And if at least four participants overall of the 11 suggested removal of an item, we took it out. And that resulted in three items being removed because they were based, they were more related to diversion of food assistance funds into drug use and tobacco purchases. They felt that those were not relevant to actually accessing uh, food, food assistance within the community. So as a result of our Delphi, we had 37 items that comprised our scale and 20 of the items were stated in reverse so that we uh, wouldn't have acquiescence bias. We used a four point Likert scale uh, for the responses. I did not want to use a five point because I wanted to force an answer. I don't like that middle one that says neither agree or disagree. I really wanted to force an answer for this. So we used a four point. And the level of, of agreement on 20 of those items suggests higher level of food assistance acceptability and higher level on the other suggested lower likelihood to um, accept food assistance. So of course we had to reverse score those 17 negatively scored items. So in the end, higher scores on our scale reflected a greater will willingness to perceive that food assistance was something that was socially acceptable. So we use research match. We had our questionnaire. Uh, we put this on research match with a link to REDCap. And if you're not familiar with research match, it's a repository of volunteers um, that you can, you can go in and, and have your inclusion exclusion criteria set uh, for a lot of studies. And there's, I mean, if you join, I will warn you that you get um, an email uh, usually about every other day to be in a study, but it, it is a very good service for researchers. So we recruited 561 individuals. The inclusion criterion for this was just to be 18 years of age. We didn't wanna limit on this first one. Uh, and then we sent emails to a random sample of the volunteers who met the criterion. And they clicked on the consent link uh, on research match and that took them directly into REDCap. And I'm sure most of you are familiar with REDCap. It's a service that's available for survey research that's also free. So then we conducted our factor analysis once we received that and we wanted to limit the final scale to a minimum number of items to actually decrease respondent burden whenever we started using the, um, the scale. It means in standard deviation, we use those to identify items that had cylinder floor effect that would influence our correlation and our reliability. And then we evaluated those using Cronbach's alpha if item deleted. If the item deleted Cronbach was higher than the alpha of the full scale, it was deemed as negatively contributing to the measurement. In our exploratory factor analysis with oblique rotation, we uh, analyzed the dimensionality of the scale and the factor loadings. Um, we ended up with two factor loadings and I'll take that forward uh, in our scree plot, you can see there at the elbow, we, we just had the two items that were being measured that were significant. So these are the factor loadings. Uh, we had two subscales and that is the stigma that's associated 
with acceptance of food assistance and then food as a basic right. So when you put them together, the viewpoint that food is a basic right, there should not be a stigma, those higher scores meant that this should be something that's socially acceptable for everyone. And you can see from the factor loadings, uh, our alpha for the subscales, for stigma was 0.84, and for food as a basic right was 0.77, and our overall alpha was actually at 0.89. So the subscales could be used to measure uh, stigma in a study, and then food as a basic right could also, or they could be used together. So that gave us our 17 item scale that we decided to pilot and look at participant characteristics. We conducted another study and this time we actually did collect demographics. We wanted to find if there was any relationship with age, sex, rurality, as well as food security. So we asked those uh, questions using the USDA foods, household food security module. We used RUC codes, uh, we asked for zip code and we were able to uh, look at their degree of rurality using zip codes. And what we found was that older age, being female and living in a rural, rural area were predictive of the likelihood of perceiving food assistance as socially acceptable. With our regression model, age, sex and rurality accounted for about a little less than 9% of the variance in uh, perceiving food assistance as socially acceptable. But food security did not have a statistically significant relationship with our higher uh, FRAQ scores. And our Cronbax Alpha uh, during this study was actually at 0.90. So with going forward, again, I mentioned earlier that a lot of the stigma reduction interventions will focus on health conditions or behaviors, and they tend to target specific behaviors and often implemented at only one sociologic level. So we can do that, or we can hit more than one at a time. So with the intrapersonal, if you think about how do, how do we change cognitively and affectively the way people think about and the way people feel about accepting food assistance. So that's one entire domain where you can change that intrapersonal. And then interpersonal, how do we change what people are experiencing from those around them? The expectations, those previous interactions, how do we make sure that food assistance personnel are very sensitive to some of the stigma that may be involved with people, excuse me, accepting uh, food assistance? And also the built and service environment in the community, looking at our community centers, are they, um, are they pleasant areas where people can feel free to go and, and ask for help? Or is it something that, um, you know, it, it inhibits just the way it's set up, the way the processes are, and it inhibits people from asking for help. And again, rurality, because it is a small town, um, a lot of times with these rural communities, and then society and policy, wow, there's so much there that, uh, where we can actually impact reducing that stigma and the feelings of discrimination. So with intrapersonal, if you think about how do we change the perception of food assistance as being charity to be in a social norm, there's actually a couple ways that if, if you think about it, with climate change, 18% of greenhouse gas emissions is, comes from food that's wasted within our landfills. And surprisingly, when food is consumed or food is composted, we don't, you don't experience those greenhouse gas emissions to that point. 
So if we can somehow reframe effectively the thought that I'm doing, I'm saving the climate by accepting surplus food. I'm going to show my age here, but when I was growing up, if you inherited a sweater from your sister or older sibling, that was a hand-me-down, that was charity. But now those sweaters and those you know, older clothes, those are called vintage items and celebrities are wearing them. So we completely change the perception of used clothing from being something that was a hand-me-down to something that's a beautiful vintage item. So can we do the same thing with food? Can we say we want to repurpose when we have food waste? Is there a way to repurpose that? And fortunately, our, our USDA cooperative extension agents, the family and consumer science agents are very good. They actually have classes on being able to repurpose that. But trying to change that affective domain of th thinking about this differently, when, you, when I go to a church potluck, we always have food left over. Nobody hesitates to take, you know, their little styrofoam container home with them because that's a, an abundance. That's a blessing. So if we can begin to, you know, change our social perspective of these are, a, this is an abundance that we want to share with you. We are not giving you charity. We are saving the environment. We are repurposing so if we can somehow develop interventions that will help us with that interpersonal feeling of, well, I'm taking, I'm, this is just charity, instead of giving people the opportunity to affect climate change. If you think about it, people who are of lower socioeconomic status, they feel kind of helpless. Like, what can I do to contribute to saving the environment? And if we can somehow change the perception that just by accepting surplus food, it keeps it out of the landfills and you're making an impact on the planet. With interpersonal, the way with others and how others react, if you think about the WIC program, one of the best programs ever when it comes to nutrition, in my opinion, and I'm sure a lot of your opinions, that's, we don't think twice about accepting food that's going to make our children healthy. So why, why do we not feel that way about any source of community or you know, other resources that are available. We should feel that way about all of the resources that are out there. The built and service environment, whenever I was young and in that grocery store of my mother's, people brought in their little booklets of food stamps. They were different colors based on the amount and they would tear them out. And it was almost like changing dollars back and forth. I mean, there were times whenever someone would hand her a my mother, a $5 coupon, and she would give them back two of the $1 coupons. But we changed that to where it's now the EBT card because it's, it's hard to identify people. So that stigma in the checkout line is no longer there because you're swiping a card just like anyone else would. With society and policy, how do we change that per perception? One thing is we refer to food swamps a lot. That in itself suggests that, you know, just that, that term, a food swamp, you live in a food swamp, that's demeaning. Even though there's a lot of fast food, there's almost no sit down restaurants in some of these areas. So how do we change that perception of that? And then also, as I mentioned early with the rural population, the impact on fresh produce, that perception that because I live here, the produce that I am able to consume in the community is very subpar and it's not uh, on point with what everyone else is able to consume. So in summary, uh, and I'm, I'm going to pick your brains in a moment, um, the stigma that's associated with food assistance happens across multiple social 
ecological levels and those interventions to reduce stigma, we need to evaluate that with appropriate scales. So it's my hope that a lot of you will actually start using this scale and test it. I mean, really look at the rigor uh, and I would love to know about it, what you, what you find. And again, that additional research is needed. I do wanna mention this photograph. This was taken by a very good friend of mine. When we were doing our project in Perry County, we also experienced some record flooding in the region. And this is a, a gentleman who uh, was, a, was a father. He's a veteran. And you can see the floodwaters took the siding off his older home, which had been resided so that he could continue to live there. And just the look of despondence and loss and concern on his face is just profound to me. And this was in the this is in the county where I uh, grew up. So it's it's very near and dear to me to try to reduce the stigma as well as the suffering. And it's concerning because you know now things the price of food has increased, the price of gasoline has increased. We're arguing about you know is there a potential for a looming recession? Uh, so things have the potential to become even worse. And a lot of these people are going to be suffering even more, but the stigma is still there. So it's going to be difficult for them to actually reach out and ask for help. So this is Perry County, Kentucky, and you can see how beautiful it is, but you can also see why a flood would really devastate the area. And these are my references. Okay, so I will stop screen sharing. And I, I well, thank you, uh, Tova. I do want to ask if, I mean, if, if we, do we want to take questions first or can I ask my questions? We can do questions first. Yes, well, we do have one question. So why don't we start with that? And then okay. uh, we'll, we'll see how they flow in and then you can bring your awesome questions. Thank you for that wonderful presentation. And I'm sure many people will find this very, very useful. Thank you. Um, so our first question is asking, is the, the FRAQ publicly available at this time? It is, and my email is on the last screen. And um, it is, the, our work is currently, our manuscripts are currently with the Food Security Journal to be considered for publication. And it's, it is publicly available. I just ask that you let me know and I will send it to you because we'd really like to have an ideal to be able to look at when people do the psychometrics to, to be able to track that. So you can use it for whatever you would like to, but I would, uh, I would prefer that people at least touch base with me and say, you know, this was the Cronbach's Alpha. We used it in this population. So I'm very happy to, uh, to send that out. And if you want, I can send this to Rachel um, and she can uh, provide the information. But again, my email is on that last slide. Wonderful. And the next question is, has any of this work been published? Again, uh, this we're um, under consideration right now. Just this past week, uh, we submitted to Food Security Journal uh, two different papers. We haven't, the second study, we have not started because these are very recent. We have not started the manuscript for that, but I do anticipate that also being published. Thank you, Rachel. Um, and um, I, I would like to, I'm hopeful that we're able to do this in other populations, particularly those in marginalized communities, minority communities, and really get a feel for 
the differences, you know, culturally, ethnically, racially, are there differences in how people feel about um, being willing to accept food assistance from both governmental agencies as well as from uh, food pantries in, in their communities? Absolutely. And that is um, all the questions. You're getting lots of positive feedback of, for oh, the wonderful presentation. Uh, but that's all. As, if anyone has any more questions, uh, please put into the Q&A box. But for now, we'll let you start your discussion. Thank you. Okay. I just, I would like to ask, because I know a lot of you um, work in some of these organizations that either provide food assistance or provide access to others who are able to provide food assistance. So, I mean, I would, I would like to hear from you about what you perceive as some possible ways that we can reduce this stigma, because it's, it's, it's very concerning that we're, we're working so hard to get food into communities and then we realize that there are people who are suffering very much and they're not accessing that because of stigma. So I would really like for the audience to chime in um, and talk about this. There's another question. What is the contribution of local farmers and farmers markets to the food supply? That's a very good question. Uh, one of the things that we're doing in Kentucky is, and I, and I know a lot of other states are also doing this, where if you buy produce with uh, SNAP funds, you receive back uh, additional uh, fruit and vegetable bucks where they can buy more. So by going to the farmer's market, using your SNAP benefits, you actually are able to buy more. And then another thing that uh, we have uh, programs here are the senior bucks where people who are over the age of 65 qualify for <coughs> a weekly to monthly allocation. I'm not sure if they do, if they allocate these funds each week or if it's once a month where they receive bucks to go to um, the farmer's market and actually uh, pr purchase uh, fresh produce. Okay, Christina, I'm, I'm trying to let's see here. I can. I can read that off for you if that's a little easier. All right, so she mentions parents from our studies know difficulty to apply for assistance with little help increase stigma. More mm -hmm. user-friendly applications would be a big plus. I, you know, I agree. I mean, I've, I've never, I've never felt more ignorant than when I'm having to fill out forms. I mean, some of the, even just to, to go, I was in Washington, DC and I had to submit my itinerary to the funder. And my, one of my research team had, had to help me because <laughs> the forms were so complicated and that's not my, that's not my wheelhouse as they say, you know, I'm, I'm a researcher. I'm not someone who really focuses on every little detail related to my travel. So I agree, I mean, with you, Christine, that, you know, a lot of the difficulty in applying uh, for that assistance, plus they feel like they're perceived as not being intelligent if they have a hard, if they struggle or if they skip, you know, one item and, well, you didn't check this box. So, yeah, I agree. That's a very good idea. So there's another question we have here. Is there a difference in acceptance of local produce versus other donations? 
Very good question. And, and I will say several years ago in one in this same county was involved as well as a couple of other counties. We did what we called satellite farmers markets at churches. Uh, it was a large county, 500 square miles. So we did the quarters of the county and we put a pop-up farmer's market in each of the four areas where people in the community could actually bring their produce and sell it. And we worked with a cooperative extension and it failed miserably because everybody who was a farmer in that area, they said, why would I sell to my neighbors? I give my neighbors. When I have extra tomatoes, I just take them to my neighbors. I don't feel right selling them. So they wouldn't even come to the market, even though they had the option of giving them away. So it, local produce is absolutely well accepted, but they do tend to want to give things to people rather than sell them when there is a surplus. And there's a comment, uh, 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 Yazia again, elderly were more likely to accept commodity foods if they knew they were helping farmers yeah, with their excess food in food pantries if there is donated food from farmers or CSA members, then it is fresher, but people um, are helping the farmers. This seems to reduce the stigma. Absolutely, and we're on the same wavelength, the same page is that if, if we reframe this as you are helping the environment, you are helping other people, you are saving the planet, you are saving jobs. If we can somehow reframe this away from well, here, you know, we know you're poor, we know you're struggling, so here is this. If we can get away from that somehow as a, as a social concept, what a difference we can make. And it looks like Harriet also has one. Who's been found it? Uh, Harriet says, thanks for the great presentation. The issue of stigma is real. We conducted a study recently in Oklahoma and found the awareness of food assistance programs was near universal utilization was very low. Yep. About a fifth of food insecure households were not utilizing available resources. The reasons given are similar to what you had in your list. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that we all have ideas on how we can, uh, can, can change this. You know, Oklahoma is probably demographically quite similar to Kentucky with you know, you have metropolitan areas and then we, you also have a lot of rural communities. So I think that there, there are so many variables that go into food insecurity that it's so many opportunities for us to actually change that perception. And again, it's going to take both cognitive and affective shifts. So think of the partnerships we all can form, form together and collaborate on tackling this problem because you know, it is real, you know, like Harriet said, it's very real. And it's something that despite if we put a food bank on every single corner, but people aren't willing to actually access the help, it's just an exercise in futility. And it's frustrating. You know, you also have volunteer fatigue that goes into this when people look around and they realize, well, I know, you know, the, the family two doors down from me, they're hungry, but yet they won't come to the food bank. And that's frustrating. That contributes, I think, a lot to volunteer fatigue as well. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the emails. I'm excited. So what do you think about the idea of presenting this as a climate change measure? Because it would empower people who don't have a lot of power to be able to do something to impact the environment. 
I mean, what are your thoughts on that as, as researchers and as, you know, people who are working in the community? I mean, do you think people would feel better about that? Or is that just something that's a dream and probably wouldn't fly? I know there's some people working in the space on this call, so feel free to. Yeah, yeah, she has her hand up. I don't know how to open her mic. Can you do maybe? Yeah. 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 Uh, hi, Francis. Oh, hey. sorry. Um, sorry, I don't have my my. Un sorry, you can't see me. But anyway, um, I think that's a brilliant idea because. Um, I think oftentimes the part of that stigma is uh, low income people don't realize that they're already have the lowest carbon footprint. Right. And so they're actually really already climate champions. And so, you know, what, what they're doing is just would be like a refinement on already this really um, uh, incredible lifestyle of, you know, low purchasing, really conscious of, you know, energy, water use, all the other things that go along with that. So I think oftentimes it's the, it's the way that we talk about how, uh, it's more challenging for the providers to learn from the, from the lower income population of how to be better climate stewards. And so if that could be flipped, uh, mm -hmm. somehow so that they could see that they're actually champions ready for the future, have already those habits that everybody else has to adopt and that there's like an empowerment of that. And, and then ways we have a community kitchen. And so we do take some farmer produce and redo that as learning how to preserve mm -hmm. and then that gets donated. So I think, I think there, there has maybe the, for us, what we're thinking about is we have to flip that into uh, recognizing that they already have a lot of skills to navigate the future that they're doing and right. how do we how do we help them recognize that and help other people recognize that that they're going to teach other people how to do this right absolutely yeah absolutely very but good point but I'm looking forward to your ideas on how, how to how we frame that because I I mean we really we haven't been successful in in like helping the the next layer up provide that empowerment or for the people themselves to to like raise their voices so I don't, I don't know it's I don't know I'm look I'm excited about all of this because I think there's some really good opportunities thank you oh you're, you're very welcome and thank you you know our cooperative extension family and consumer science agents they offer classes in the microprocessing and there's so much that they do related, you know, with, with the cooking skills and cooking demonstrations and really being able to manage uh, a, a household budget and, and provide nutrition for families that I think that's one of the best resources. It's often overlooked in our communities because they're not only the experts at navigating all of this, they're also community members and they care about what's going on in their community. So it's always, it's always a pleasure for me when I have the opportunity to work with some of our extension agents uh, on projects that reach out to people in the community that are marginalized, who otherwise would not have the opportunity to, um, you know, to learn how to, to cook and enjoy those, uh, those suppers together type of thing that, that we're able to offer. 
All right. If, are there any other questions? We do have a little more time left. Uh, so feel free to put in the Q&A or the chat box. I can share a little bit more about uh, when we talked to the nurses and nurse practitioners who were suddenly unemployed and how that their responses. One of the things that really came out of that was they were being nurses. You know, we tend to worry about our communities and our patients, but it left quite a few of them with the motivation to become more involved with helping people within the community going forward because the realization of what it's like not to know if you're going to be able to feed your kids dinner and having to consume a lot of processed foods. We had uh, one nurse who said, you know, thank goodness for, for noodles and soup. That's all we've eaten for days and days and days. And, and she said that that happened even as they were recovering from COVID. She said, we really didn't have any other resources. Uh, and she said, it really gave me the perspective of what people in my community are struggling with. So now she, she works at one of the food banks. She donates part of her time uh, as a volunteer at the food bank. So we really saw the realization and how people put that as nurses into action and things that they wanted to make sure um, not only didn't happen to their families, but they wanted to find ways to improve food security within their own communities and volunteer more. So if, if there was any positive aspect of the pandemic, that, that was one of them, was that people really got a good feel for what it's like to not have resources and to live day to day with that constant dread and that despair and that fear of not knowing um, how you're gonna meet the responsibilities and the needs of your family. Yeah, I agree. And I actually attended one of the White House um, listening sessions that they had, I think, just this couple, maybe two or three weeks ago. So I'm really glad to see that. Uh, and I'm so glad that SNEB is going to be a part of that and be able to, you know, really send the message that people are out here working, they're trying to make a difference and they we need help. People need help for this. Thank you, Rachel. All right, are there any other questions? All right, thank you so much. And let's give Dr. Hardy and Fanny another round of applause for, for this important work. And we look forward to seeing the publications and developing and spreading, so thank you. You are yes. welcome. And again, please feel free to email me. I'm happy to, to share the questionnaire and I really hope that people want to use it in their studies. and. Um, Let's, let's really test this, shine the light on this questionnaire and make sure that it's rigorous and we're measuring what we want to measure. Yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah, watch for an email by Friday that includes a link to the recording that we made, um, the handout that has Dr. Um, Feening's information on it, as well as the CE, your CEU certificate. Um, and then just a reminder that when I close the webinar, there'll be um, a short survey and appreciate your feedback on that. And um, as Yasha mentioned, just a reminder, SNEB does have um, listening sessions that are occurring every Thursday, the next three Thursdays. And then we also have an 
um, the, uh, an, an email address, um, just acpp at sneb.org, if you want to send comments that helps inform the report that SNEB is going to send um, to the White House listening session, that report's due July 15th. Um, but then obviously all of us have the uh, capacity to comment directly to um, the White House listening session, um, you know, individually. So, and then I, we remiss and we were just, as the speakers were getting um, started this afternoon, we were talking about um, both of us or all of us are going to be in Atlanta in person for the SNEB conference. Um, so SNEB's conference registration, um, the early registration deadline is July the 8th, as well as the hotel reservation deadline. So you'll save the most on registration if you um, register before that date. Um, but uh, then virtual registration for the online components um, happens a, a, will extend like another two weeks but um, those register all the registration deadlines are coming up so um, we look forward to either seeing you in person in Atlanta or online um, in July um, we don't have any other webinars on the calendar um, so I suspect the webinar schedule will get um, going again in the fall but thank you all for attending today bye-bye